Good morning, everybody. How you guys doing on this cold, snowy, but beautiful day, right? I have to include the beautiful part because it really, it really is. It's, it's a mess to drive in, but it's, it's just one amazing way that God blesses us, being able to just look out at the mountains and see all that. Can you, I can't even get over that sometimes driving in. Yesterday when the sun was out and you could see everything over the mountains, it was just, there's no better just picture image of God's glory on earth, I don't think, than looking at that. Uh, hey, welcome again to everybody. If you're, if you're a visitor, I think I recognize all the faces here, but if you're a visitor, um, come see us after service. We'd love to connect with you. It means a lot that you took some time to come and join us, even if you've been here a couple times. Um, we really would love to get to know you just a little bit better. So we'll be hanging out between services. Be sure you take time to do that. Um, if you've missed any of the messages in this series, because this weekend we wrap up our, our kind of mini-series on godly relationships, and if you've missed any of them along the way, feel free to go back and check them out. You can listen to them through our website, just discovercommunity.church. You can listen to them right through the message archive there or podcast, Google Play, iTunes. You can catch them that way. But it's a good idea to catch up in, in the previous messages. And I think it is important to see the common thread that runs through all the different types of relationships. We've been talking about uh, godly relationships for friends, godly relationships in the workplace, godly relationships in a church setting. Um, we've been talking about all those things. And this weekend, we kind of wrap up our series by talking about a godly marriage relationship. And I know a lot of people just like, uh, another marriage, another marriage thing. You know, we just finished two days in a marriage conference, and there was so much amazing information through that. But I want to point out, I mean, it's not like anybody's going to come up with something new about marriages that you've never heard before in your life. But my prayer is that God would show you something through this message that maybe had just never solidified before. You know, if you look at science, they say you have to hear something 21 different times in seven different ways. I mean, it changes from time to time, but you have to hear the same message repeated in different ways a number of times before it finally finds its way into your brain and, and can be solidified there. I'm praying that the Holy Spirit does it quicker than that, but that this is a part of, this is a part of that process. So you just join me in prayer as we open up. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord God, for the miracle that is marriage, the, the opportunity to see two separate individuals come together in your spirit, come together as one, and to walk forward through life together. God, it's not something that we ever want to take lightly. We don't want to do that because we know the devil doesn't take it lightly either. Marriages are under attack, and so I lift up all the marriages, all the marriages to be, all the ones uh, that are current, God, that, that are forming in this place, God, just have your blessing be upon them. Show them something through this message, through whatever method you want to use, God, but use me to deliver your word and let that word change lives. Let that word change relationships. And by changing lives and relationships, God, you can change generations. And so that's what we want today, God, for your real change to take place in our hearts and then through our lives. So, Father, uh, we lift this time up to you. Just ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, if you've been listening to all the previous messages in this series anyway, you've probably noticed that there are several different Greek words, because we tend to go back to the Greek a lot, words for love. 
Does anybody remember what the four basic kinds of love in the Greek language are? Agape, eros, phileo, and storge. Exactly. (coughs) Phileo love, brotherly love, right? It's a kind of love you have between friends. It's it's a friendship kind of a love, not not just blood relatives, but it's it's a deep friendship. And storge, storge, storge is family love, okay? It's the kind of love that a parent has for their child. It's the kind of love um, that siblings sometimes have. But that's also a very natural love because we even see animals have love for their family and for their young ones. So that's kind of a natural kind of love. And then we see eros love. Eros love, passion, passionate love. That's also a natural kind of love. We see that happen time and time again. You don't have to be a Christian to have that eros, passionate love for someone, right? And then we really go down to the core of everything, which is that agape love. And that's the common thread that you've seen through all these different relationships is agape love. Agape love is a sacrificial love. It is a true love, but it is, it is, number one, first and foremost, based in the idea of sacrifice. Now, when you think of love and sacrifice, it's not normally something you're going to see on a Valentine's Day card, right? You go to Target and you look through the 10 aisles of Valentine's Day cards that they probably have. What happens to all the ones they don't sell? Just to buy the way? Like, they can't possibly sell 4,000, I don't know, maybe they do. I wonder where they all go. They, maybe they go next year. I don't know. But, but point being, that idea of agape love, that sacrificial love, is not something that gets talked about a lot, but it's foundational for our understanding of how to interact with each other in any way because it's the very first kind of love that God instituted. It's the kind of love that Jesus illustrated when he gave himself for us on the cross. So understanding how that is a common thread through all kinds of love, no matter what context you're talking about it in, is incredibly important. So this message today is going to be about that marriage love. And there is an aspect of that eros, that passionate love, absolutely. But that kind of love can fade just as quickly as it comes. You see that love at first sight idea. Love at first sight, that is 100% based on that, that visual attraction. And you see that happening, but just as quickly as that attraction happens, it can fade. And if there's not something underpinning that, if there's not a core, a, a core spirit of, of that agape sacrificial love, then you're going to have something that's easily shaken. You wake up and you find the sink full of toothpaste, Right? It's easy to shake that, okay, the bloom is off the rose, all these different phrases that people use. Um, that kind of love is easy to be shaken, but agape sacrificial love, which ought to underpin everything that we do, that is the kind of love that is God-led. It's really only possible with the power of the Holy Spirit. And so with that, we have something that can be a foundation to all of our relationships. So we're going to go into that um, last uh Pastor Gabe, thank you for teaching last week. She talked about the, the godly friendships. 
Um, I thought it was a great message. I hope you got a lot out of it. I really did. The idea especially that we are called to love everyone, but not everyone should be our friend. There is a boundary there sometimes, and we need to pay attention to that. If you missed that message, go back and listen to it. Uh, It's very good. But again, going back to the topic of godly marriage, and I think my whole heart for this entire series has really led up to this godly marriage uh, message because godly marriages are under attack. Not just marriage in general, but specifically a godly marriage is under attack. The very idea, the very concept of godly marriage is ridiculed, it's mocked, it's, it's belittled, and ultimately you're told that it really doesn't matter as long as you're in love. But being a Christian doesn't insulate you from problems doesn't insulate you from the kind of problems that every other marriage, Christian or non-Christian, go through. In fact, what it does doesn't insulate you. It exposes you. It exposes you to a more pinpoint and deliberate attacks from the enemy who want to take that away from you. That very thing that God intended to bless you, the enemy wants to take that away. So we're going to talk about that. So an absolute fact that we know Satan is out to destroy Christian marriages. Absolutely. Satan is out to destroy them. Because if he can take you down, not only does he take down generations to follow, but then those on the outside looking in at a Christian couple saying, okay, they're supposed to be, they're my example of of what the Bible says a relationship ought to be. And if we're not living that, what's the incentive for a couple on the outside to put in that effort, to try and learn about what the Bible says? And better yet, to come to Jesus. Our example that we set through our lives can be the very thing that causes somebody to decide to turn to Christ and give their life. And there's no better calling for a Christian than that. So at the very core, I think, of this attack that Satan is trying to to bring against Christian marriages is the very idea, number one, of what marriage is. Right? It's those definitions. We want to, these definitions are so easy to put up on a pedestal, and we live or die and we fight over the definition of a word. Not the heart behind it, not the idea behind it, but the definition. And people will drive a stake in the ground, man, and they will rally around that flag and they'll fight it to the death. We have the definition of marriage. How many times in the last week, month, year have you heard some debate about the definition of marriage? over and over again. The other one, though, and I think it's even more basic, is just an attack on the definition of what love is. And I think in some ways that's even more dangerous. The very definition of what love is within marriage specifically we're talking about today, that's under attack. So of those two definitions, the definition of a Christian marriage and the definition of Christian love within marriage, which one do you think is more dangerous? Kind of a rhetorical question. But let me put it this way. If you go to the Bible and you're looking for a definition, what does the Bible, excuse me, I'm sorry, what does the Bible say the definition of a Christian marriage is? Could you find it in there? It's pretty clear, right? You wouldn't have to look really far to find a a really rock-solid definition of what a Christian marriage is 
in the Bible. Now, what about the definition of love within marriage? Could you find a rock-solid, ironclad definition of what that is in the Bible? Now, if you study it, absolutely. But it's not quite as easy. It's not quite as obvious. And even more so, it's very, very easy to twist that definition of what that is. And I believe that's what the devil is trying to do when he twists and attacks the idea of Christian marriage and love within a Christian marriage. He's going after the very definition. There are so many ideas out there about what constitutes love within a Christian marriage. So many ideas. I have something. It's it's a funny video. I want to show it to you here. Um, It's funny, so bear with me. It's not hardcore theology, but it brings up some interesting points. So take a second and check this out. Hi, I'm Lee Pofaith, founder of NeedHarmony.com, the Internet's number one source of finding true love. We have thousands of clients who have become experts on true love, so we ask them what their definition of love is. My definition of love is like roses and cheesecake factory and pampered chef items, which this guy doesn't give me any of. My mom always said love is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to (laughs) get. Uh, that's already been used. Can you come up with something a little more original? Huh? (laughs) Give me some sugar. No matter what your definition of love is, and trust me, we've heard some real humdingers, we here at Need Harmony have what you're looking for. Love to me is like, is like music in the air. My love, your every breath that I take. Please don't sing. Mom always said, can't hurry love, you just have to wait. It's a game. Hey, that's a song. It is? You're my helpless love. It's endless. Huh? It's endless. But love is endless. Told you. (laughs) St. Augustine once said, uh, Love itself is what is left when falling in love burns away. I found that sometimes you just get burned. Did you hear that, Margaret? You burned my flesh. Oh! My mom always said, love is patient, love is kind. Love's hey, there's a verse out of the Bible. Can we get uh, your own definition? Can I call my mom? Forget love is patient. Fill out a questionnaire at needharmony.com and your inbox will be full of love in a matter of seconds. That's a promise. Define your love for me in a poem. No. Yes. I'm not going Come to. Come on, a poem. It'll be fun. Come on. Come on. Do it. Roses are red, violets are blue, Debbie, I, I, I can't do this. What? That doesn't even rhyme. That doesn't rhyme. He doesn't know what love is. Do you feel like God has forgotten you when it comes to love and just waiting something you'd rather do for takeout? Well, let us define love for you at needharmony.com, a whole new life of compromise. So, funny video, but if you noticed in the very last 
last fading words, there was, there was a word in there that probably came closer than all the others to describing what love within a marriage is. Anybody catch what that one single word was? Compromise. I would go one step further and add sacrifice. That's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about that. So let's go, in order to really understand that, let's go back to the very beginning and look at how God sees marriage. See how God instituted marriage, right? So let's go back to the very beginning. And by the very beginning, I mean Genesis. We go back there. Set the scene here. God had just created the heavens and earth. Created the heavens and earth, right? Then he sees that he needs to create man. He creates man from the very dust of the ground. I'm condensing it here, right? If you want the whole story, go back and read, go back and read Genesis. Creates man from the dust in the ground and gives him everything really that he ought to need. To survive, he gives them water. He gives them plants. He's, he's in the garden. He's in this beautiful place. And he gives them everything. But then realizes there's a need for companionship. I don't think God realized it. It wasn't a surprise to him. I think he wanted to show Adam that this is all great. This is everything you need, right? Except there's a part in him that needed companionship. So what happens then? Genesis 2.18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So again, think about this. Think about the scene here. He's in the middle of, garden, of the Garden of Eden, surrounded by indescribable beauty, surrounded by all the water he would need, all the food that he would need, everything that he would need, and God says, you need more. There has to be more to this. So it goes on, and I'm just going to read this section. Also from Genesis, it continues right after this verse. This is Genesis 2, 19 to 22. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to all the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Okay. So let's take a closer look at that. In fact... If we go back to verse 218, where the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone, I will make him a helper suitable for him. We see that very same thing in verse 20 here. There was not found a helper suitable for him. A helper suitable. This is the point that we're going to look at here, a helper suitable. So let's look at what that means. Okay, you've probably heard this taught before, but if you haven't, bear with me. The word helper is, is a Hebrew word, and it means azer, and it means literally just a helper. It just means somebody to come alongside and help you with a task. But the other part of that is the word suitable. That word suitable is the Hebrew word neget, okay? And we can't just look at helper without looking at the word suitable. 
Because while we break those into a couple different words, there is one word that the Hebrew phrase, it, it combines them into this. It's not one word. It's a phrase, which is Azer Kenegeto, which means help meet. Okay? And we've probably, many of us heard the term. It means help meet. Help meet what? That's what we're looking about, what we're looking at here. What it really means, though, it means a helper who is your opposite. That very same word is used, or the root of the very same word is used in other terms that we see in Scripture where someone is sitting across from the table from, let's say, an opponent, and they're arguing. They're in opposition to each other. So it literally means a helper who is your reflection, okay, same as, but opposite to. It's the idea of looking at yourself in a mirror. That's me. That's flesh of my flesh. That's just like me. However, it's opposite of me. That's an important concept to grasp. Your mate, given by God, is not meant to be exactly like you. It was never designed that way. When I talk to couples and say, oh, we are so alike. We are exactly alike. We love the same things. We think the same way. I'll be honest with you. That's a flag to me. Because that means there's going to end up being those little places where you grade on each other. An opposite. Gabe and I, she is the best thing that God ever did in my life, short of my salvation in Jesus. We are so different in so many ways. But God uses those differences. Her, her spirit, what she is, and then mine, and they come together and they form a complete. That is the idea from the very beginning. That the helper, this help meet as God designed it, would fill in those spaces, fill in those things that Adam was lacking. And not only help him and come alongside him, but actually help, to use another movie term, to complete him. So Adam's response, we go back to scripture here. Adam's response at seeing this, this can you imagine his response? He's been seeing all these animals come through. Okay, that's a yak. Eh, I can't see spending time with a yak, okay, that's a gorilla, that, that'd be difficult, okay, so he's looking at all these things, and he's like, ah, there's nothing, nothing suitable for me, then he lays his eyes on Eve, Genesis 2.23 says, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man, so Adam gave Eve her name. He didn't name her Eve. He named her woman. So, gentlemen, you feel free to just call your wife woman. No, don't. No, don't do that. Don't do that. We'll edit that out of the, out of the copy. Genesis 2.24, though, goes on. We have this on screen. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, if we look at this scripture, there is some debate on exactly who is supposed to be speaking here and saying this. Now, Genesis was written by Moses, okay? It was dictated to Moses by God, and Moses essentially wrote it. So, is this, is this Father God saying this reason for this reason? Is this Moses interjecting his commentary or is it Adam seeing this and saying, okay, this is why this happens? Now, I want to point out that at this point, 
Adam would have had no context for what this means. I mean, I don't have a father and mother. I have God. I don't even know if Adam knew that God was his father. But he would have no context for leaving a father and mother and being joined to his wife. So we have to look at that, Adam's understanding of the context of what's happening here. But either way, whether you argue that it was Moses or Adam or God or who actually said this, what we see here is Father God giving away the very first bride. Giving away the very first bride to Adam. And it's important to understand that at this moment, the idea of marriage, the idea of a helper being given to this man is at this point being instituted and ordained by God. This is when it happens. It's important to know. Now, why did God do this? Why did God see that Adam needed this woman? Was it for strictly for reasons of procreation? Go forth and multiply, fill the earth? As we saw in the, the video during the marriage conference, and it's far-fetched, yes, but God could have made Adam like an amoeba. Just, just divide, just divide, and we'll divide, and we'll divide, and we'll divide. Very efficient way to make more numbers if you're going to do it. God didn't do it that way. Did he do it for companionship? I think there's a large part of that that is for companionship, right? The Hebrews have a saying that goes like this, that explains the reason for this. And the Hebrew saying is this, it was so that man would not be tempted to think that he was in charge. You get it. He got it right away. That's good. I thought I was going to have to explain that one. Very smart. So that man would not be tempted to think that he was in charge. Or was it this? Was it because we needed, as human beings, Adam needed a context to understand God's character? And without another person there, without a wife, without someone who he could love, who he could sacrifice for, who he could be one with, he had no context to understand what God's covenant love was, what the idea of sacrifice was, and by that, the very nature of God. He had no context for this. I think this is why. So Adam's given this amazing gift, right, an amazing gift of this woman to come alongside and help him, but it was also at the very same time that it was a gift given, it was an awesome responsibility given to him. An awesome responsibility to lead his wife. And the very first opportunity he had to do that, he dropped the ball. The very first chance he had to step up and be a leader, he dropped the ball. Let me explain to that. So what? So after, after this, after God gives Adam the woman, he names her, what's virtually the very next thing that happens? Eve is tempted by the snake and eats the apple, right? That's not, bless you, that's not exactly the, first, the next thing that happens, but the next significant event that happens, that happens. Now, I want to ask you, whose fault was it that Eve was tempted and ate the apple? Whose fault? Okay, there's no, there's no wrong answer here. Okay, okay. I heard serpent's fault. Okay, 
it's her fault. Any other options? Okay. Remember when I said there were no wrong answers? There are wrong answers, and those are both wrong. I can say that because they're my pastors, okay? I can say that. That's right. Here's whose fault that was. It was Adam's fault. It was Adam's fault. Let me explain why. Let me explain why. Where was Eve when Adam was told, don't eat from the tree? She wasn't around yet. So who did God say, don't eat from the tree in the center of the garden? Who did God tell that to directly? Adam. Eve wasn't there. Eve wasn't there. Genesis 2, 16, 17, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Told directly from God to Adam. Adam's job was to spiritually lead his wife, and when he had the chance to do it, he didn't do it. He dropped the ball. He had heard from God. She didn't. She was to follow him, and she didn't. We see in the Bible where it's told, wives, submit to your husbands. Okay? We hear that quote over and over again, and the minute you hear that quote, most women bristle immediately. I'm not submitting to him. Those, I think, that have a problem with that phrase, number one, taken way out of context, but they don't have an understanding of what can happen if they don't. Going all the way back to the very beginning, Adam's job was to lead his wife, and he didn't. He gave up that responsibility, and he didn't. Eve's job was to seek her husband's guidance, to, to, to submit to him, and she didn't. And in fact, when she ate the apple, she gave some to him. And instead of saying, that's a bad idea, I was told not to, he didn't. We have a reversal of roles where Adam is actually following his wife's lead at that point, knowing full well. Now hear me, it's not bad to follow your wife's lead. There's wisdom there. There's all kinds of great reasons to follow your wife's lead. But not when you've been told by God specifically, do not which is what we're talking about here. Satan's first victory, his very first victory, was to corrupt the very idea of what marriage was. And he's been using that same playbook ever since. He's got a playbook. He's got a playbook of things that were successful. Okay, Satan's not stupid. When he does something and he sees that it works in our human nature, he goes back to it again and again and again. He's not super creative. He sees what works, he writes it down, and he goes back to it. This is how this works. Here's a sneak peek at Satan's playbook. It has things in it like this. Get them to think these thoughts. My personal happiness is the most important goal in my marriage. Another one, if you don't like your current model, get a new one. Trade it in. Another one, my private sin does not affect my marriage. How about this? Breaking the marriage covenant isn't really a big deal. Everyone does it. How about there's no hope for my marriage? It just can't be fixed. 
couple more. I'm a Christian and I'm just as unhappy as my heathen friends. Why bother? And then the last one, it's just not worth the effort. Any of those statements kind of make you mad? Any of those statements kind of bristle? They do me, and they make me mad. You know why they make me mad? Because they work. Because you see them time and time again. You see it in media. You see it in well-meaning friends. You see it in all kinds of ways. We are being bombarded with this idea that it's me first, my happiness first, and then. We'll even say ideas of that in church. You need to be happy, and then you can pour out that happiness. But that's a misstatement. Our happiness has very little to do with it. Let's take a step back and look again at God's plan. Genesis 2.24, up here. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Okay, that's a difficult thing. Scripture goes on to say, this is a profound mystery. But let's take a look at some other scripture, a little later than Genesis, that kind of gives us a description of how this works. This is in Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. First, let me give you a little background on Ephesians, because I think it's important to understand what was going on, especially in this context. Paul is writing, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. It's about 60 A.D. or so, okay? His friend, his disciple, Timothy, is there pastoring this church in Ephesus, okay? This church was founded by, uh, essentially founded by Paul, but he installed Priscilla and Aquila, his good friends there, to basically start this church. So at various times, it was led by them, it was led by Paul, it was led by Timothy. There was some, there was some good teaching, there was some solid foundation that was going on here. But there was also some influential men who were starting to influence this church, influenced this church with some teaching that was not biblical. It was their own agenda. If you want information on that, 1 Timothy chapter 4 talks about the kind of the details of what's going on here. But the bottom line is some men, some specific men, were starting to teach the idea that marriage was forbidden. Marriage was to be forbidden in the church. If you're already married, well, then that was just a sin you were going to have to bear. But, you know, preferably you wouldn't ever even go down that road, right? They were teaching this. And so Paul, in this context of what we're about to read, Paul is writing to Timothy to explain to him, look, not only is this not forbidden, it's God's design. It's God's plan. And without the idea of human marriage, watching a married couple live out a godly marriage, we have no context for understanding how much God could possibly love us. No context for understanding the idea of a sacrificial love. So without that, all of your other teaching has no basis. So chapter 5 of Ephesians opens like this. Ephesians 5, 1 to 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. This is the opening of chapter 5. Chapter 5 is all about let's imitate God in everything that we do. Then he goes on to some more well-known scriptures that we talk about in marriages most of the time. He teaches how it's meant to mirror Christ and the church. Ephesians 5, 25, 26 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. 
And Ephesians 5.27 goes on, next verse, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Continuing on, Ephesians 5, 28 to 31. We have this on screen. It's a little long, so bear with me. So husbands ought to also, ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Okay, remember the all caps there refers back to that scripture that we read already in Genesis. So in case you're tempted to think this is all just an illustration of what human earthly marriage is, he finishes up with this, Ephesians 5.32, This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Pinpoints it right there. There's no ambiguity there. This is about Christ and the church. Then 533 says, Nevertheless, each individual among you must also love his own wife as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. You look at that word, love his own wife, you might be tempted to think that that's that eros, that, that sensual, that exciting kind of Twitter, Twitterish love that, that gets your heart rate going, that, that makes your palms all sweaty. You might be thinking that it's that kind of love, but it's not. The translation of that word is purely that agape love that Paul's using to describe God's love for us and our love, therefore, for each other, especially in the context of marriage. The eros love quickly fades when it's no longer fun. That love goes away. We need to have that foundation of that agape, sacrificial love. So going back to that idea of the devil's playbook, have you ever heard this kind of advice coming from people, again, books, Oprah, and I don't, whatever you think about Oprah, but you hear things like this. Find someone who makes you happy. Anybody ever heard that? Marriage advice. Find someone that makes you happy. Find someone that earns a lot of money and can take care of you. Okay? Find someone who excites you. Have anybody heard versions? I've seen a lot of blank faces. We've heard this before, right? We've heard this. We've been taught that that should be our goal. If you're looking for somebody to marry, that should be your goal. If you're already married and the person you're married to does not excite you, maybe they're not making a great living, now what? Is there something wrong? Did I pick the wrong person? Should I trade that person in for a new model? Guys, if we're looking for the perfect mate, the perfect mate does not exist. By design, by design, the, quote, perfect mate that God is going to bring to you will be your opposite, will fill in those places, will be different from you in very, very important issues. Together, you will make the perfect. Individually, neither one of us is perfect. We're all broken, sinful people. Only Jesus is holy and blameless. And he is our model. But if we, if we keep expecting our mate to be Jesus for us, we'll be disappointed every time. And that's the lie that Satan uses. 
Stop expecting perfection from anyone except Jesus Christ. Stop listening to the lies that come straight from the devil's playbook and watch Jesus' example. Matthew 20, 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So your goal in trying to find a mate, your goal out of your spouse right now shouldn't be, what can they do to serve me? Your goal and your overriding thought should be, how can I serve them? Not what can they do to love me more. Not even what can I do to love them more unless you're thinking of that agape love. What can I do to spice up my marriage? What can you do to spice up your marriage? Love sacrificially. Serve them. Serve them. That's what Jesus modeled for us. That's what we're supposed to do. Jesus didn't die on the cross with a promise to make us happy. Jesus didn't die on the cross to make our lives exciting. There's nothing in there that says that's the plan. But rather, he died to save us from ourselves. And he did it not because of who we are, but because of who he is. If we're modeling that behavior in our marriages, we serve our spouse not because of who they are, but because who he is. That should be our goal. So, bottom line here, if you're married... Know that God designed you for one another. Even if you look at your spouse and you go, my spouse and I are so different. We constantly clash. Love them because you know that God designed you for one another to complete each other, to knock off the rough spots in some cases, but to fill in places in others. You were designed for each other, to hone and sharpen each other, to bless each other, but ultimately to serve each other. You want to know how to get your needs met in your marriage? Everybody's always wondering, how do I get what I want? The way you get what you want is to line up your expectations and your desires with what Jesus wants, which is for you to serve. The way to get what you want is to serve your mate. That's how you get what you want. So if you're married, keep that in mind. For men, don't shirk your responsibility for spiritual leadership. It is your job to spiritually lead your family. Do not give up that responsibility. That was ordained and that was put in you as a characteristic by God. It was designed that way. Don't give it up. But at the same time, do not lord that over her. You're not in charge of her. It's a responsibility. It's not saying, I've put a minion under you to do your bidding. It is an incredible responsibility, and it is a heavy weight. And if we see that as anything other than a heavy, heavy weight of responsibility, we're looking at it wrong. Love her, lead her, protect her. For women now, your man has been charged by God to be your champion. Help him in that role. Help him to fulfill that role. Support him. Give him advice. Give him your wisdom. Absolutely. 
Let's submit to his leadership as we submit to Christ. And we don't do that just because the word says so. We do that because Jesus modeled that for us. This is where we should be with our hearts. Now, if you're not married, if you're not married out there, but you want to be, if you're not married and you feel that God's got something for you and you want to have a family, you want to have this godly relationship, think about this. While you're waiting, grow in the spiritual things. Grow in those things of God. Grow in your connection to Jesus. Grow in your knowledge of what the Word says. Have a correct expectation of what the Word says that your mate's going to be. But even more than that, learn what God says about your role. Don't listen to what the media says. Don't listen to what movies say that your role ought to be. Walk in what the Word says your role ought to be. Pray that when the time is right, you will be absolutely equipped for that person that God brings to you. And also know this, as God is preparing you, as God is growing you, as you're growing, as the Word says with Jesus even, growing in wisdom and stature and being prepared by the Holy Spirit for the mate that He will bring you, know this, He's also doing that with your mate right now. You may know who this person's going to be. You may never have met them, but know that God is preparing them for you as he's preparing you for them. Are you preparing yourself in a way that you would pray they are preparing themselves? Themselves. Are you holding yourself to the same standards of holiness that you would pray that your future spouse would be. Let's think about those things. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and come on up. So as we wrap up this series in godly relationships, let's take just one last quick look at the ultimate model of agape love. Remember, every single kind, whether it's business relationships, whether it's friendships, family, every relationship that you have with any other human being anywhere should be based on the concept of agape love, sacrificially loving one another. Our understanding of that is absolutely foundational. And let's look at the one scripture that is the most well-known scripture that speaks to this agape sacrificial love. It's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Father God sacrificed his most beloved son for you, to serve you, to hold you blameless and holy, to keep you where he wanted your heart to be, and to keep you safe. Now this, that's our target. We're going to miss that target more often than we hit it because we're not Jesus. But listen to this. To not try, to not aim for that target is a sin against God. We can't ever find ourselves in a place where we say, it's just too much work. I don't have the time to serve anybody. I don't have the heart. I just don't feel like serving that person. Those sorts of statements, that kind of heart is a sin against God's design and his perfect plan for what relationships 
look like. In other words, in the basis of godly marriage, we're called to love our spouse not because of who they are, but because of who God is. Amen, church? Hey, we're going to go into our response time right now. I want to take some time. We have a prayer team in the back. Some, some of you may want or desire prayer for different things, for healing, for different things that are going on in your life. That is absolutely fine. They're always back there and always willing to pray with you. But I want to specifically pray together against those things that the enemy has put in your heart, those little seeds of offense, those little spirits that are there and shouldn't be that are standing in the way of you allowing yourself to be served by your mate and you allowing yourself the heart to serve your mate. So let's pray together about that. Father God, first and foremost, I, Lord, all of us here, we repent of a spirit of pride, thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to. For thinking somehow that it is our right to be served. It's our right to be made happy. We repent of those thoughts, Lord, and we want to follow your example. We want to serve just as you modeled for us. And so we repent of the spirit of pride. We re repent of the spirit of fear in our lives. That makes us think that we've been hurt before and if we put ourselves out there and we serve again, we're going to be hurt again. And Father, anything else you want to pinpoint in our hearts right now that is keeping us from serving our spouse as you want us to, from truly showing that sacrificial love to one another, show us those places, God, where we have some kind of a block, where it's a spiritual block, where we have believed what the world says about relationships. We have believed a lie about ourselves. We have believed a lie about our mate. Show us those places, God, and we repent of those right now, and we leave them with you at the foot of the cross. Father, I pray over all the marriages here that they would be stronger than they ever have before, that you would reveal to them the error of their ways in thinking that that happiness was a key component to this. Lord, you will take care of our happiness and our happiness comes from serving. We repent of thinking that it's someone else's job to do that for us. So Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for revelation given through the word and through this message. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We've got communion at the crosses. We have communion juice and bread and crackers. You can serve yourself there. Uh, we'll, have, um, we'll have the Whitemans up here serving you. They've got wine up here. If you'd like to be served, you can do that. But let's remember, let's just remember that scripture. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. When you partake in communion, you're not just saying, hey, thanks, Jesus. You're remembering this ultimate sacrifice, God's absolute most prized possession, and he gave that for you. This is where our hearts should be in thankfulness as we take communion. So feel free to move around right now and do that. If you need prayer again, go ahead and, and take some prayer. Then let's worship and let's just celebrate what God has done. Amen? Thank you, church.
Yeah. 